Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 206. So glad you could join me. Uh, today's guest, Natalie Padilla-Young, is here, having a bit of a technical problem with her camera. We're trying to get it worked out, but uh, she should be here, and we're getting it work on switching computers, and that should be good. Um, but before we get in, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. Uh, we've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry. I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Uh, whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be greatly appreciated. Um, now we have a, we'll start with our news poem, as we always do, and we'll try to do it really slow to make sure Natalie can get back on a different computer. Um, and... Um, the, the poem for this week was Rebecca Starks, who was on Rattlecast. I can't remember which number. Maybe around number 150 or so, if you want to go back a year, and, or, or, or roughly, I think it was. Or maybe two years ago. It's hard to remember. It's been four years of the Rattlecast. Um, but at some point, Rebecca Starks was on, and um, she had a new poem, um, um, Here We Were Happy. And I'll read her note. She couldn't be here uh, right now. Um, she had a prior engagement at this time, but let's uh, take a look at her poem. And uh, this is uh, her note. This is Rebecca Starks. It is hard to write about the fires in Maui as they are happening and in the face of the terrible loss of life. I took refuge in W.S. Merwin's Palm Garden in Maui. The title echoes the words on the stone marking his and his wife's ashes. And so, of course, the devastating fire uh, that moved through uh, Maui um, and, and really the for me, living in the mountains too, it's a, it's a, you know, a, something scary and frightening that feels like it could happen at any time here as well. And here is um, Rebecca Starks reading her poem, Here We Were Happy. Here we were happy. And still I fall back on the garden like a firebreak, as if its walls might contain the inferno sweeping through paradise except this time they were given no warning, because God is the municipal government, and the tree of knowledge is one of the three thousand palm trees planted from seed and doused with dishwater until they can live off the rain. And Adam and Eve are the poet and his wife whose palms cupped the earth like a child's face, like water, saving with love what was ruined by improvement, until they turned back to ashes laid beneath a stone because the tree of life is a banyan tree whose roots were hung with jars of water and whose fruit is barely edible, famine food, and even this wasn't spared by the flames, sparked by the flaming swords of angels who guard the memory of what they destroy, which are mostly faces, and the bagats are us, shameless as the first begetters, professing innocence while stumbling on comparison. It is like war, like a bomb went off, to which the voice from the whirlwind replies, have you ever blown the top off a mountain or changed the tilt of the earth? Have you ever stoked the dragon's breath with burning grass or hacked sugarcane by hand? Have you ever blacked out the moon so you could see the stars and the stars so you could see your own blindness? And the snake, you ask? The snake is the stardust between them. No, the snake is the words on the stone. Well, that was Rebecca Starks reading Here We Were Happy 
And, um, you know, this is one of those poems where when it came up to me, I just knew that that was going to be the poem of the week, especially with that, that beautiful ending. The snake is the stardust between them. No, the snake is the words on the stone. Um, there's a powerful poem um, in memory of that the terrible tragedy that's ongoing there in Maui. Uh, So thanks so much, Rebecca, for sharing that poem. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Natalie Padilla-Young. So sit tight, and I will be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Like I said, tonight's guest is Natalie Padilla-Young. I'm at work. Natalie Padilla-Young writes copy for marketing and branding materials, spanning a wide range of clients and industries. Um, Natalie's the author of all... Of This Was Once Underwater, which is now available from Quarter Press. That's the book we're going to be looking at first. Um, The first run is a limited edition full-color hardcover book illustrated beautifully by the German artist um, Maximilian Spiel. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It is a speculative collection of poems grounded in Utah's history and scenery, and it's a fascinating collection um, of poems. Um, Natalie was in the um, speculative poetry issue way back in issue number 38 and it's probably my favorite poem in that section because it's such a creepy ending there and just the, the detached way that the, the, the conversation goes um, is one of those like where the the subtlety of like creepiness makes for more horror than um, any kind of like horror actually does when it's blunt so it's a great poem I think we might read it today um, but here she is Natalie Padilla Young uh, hey Natalie how you doing Hey, I'm good. Yeah, it's great to see you. Glad, glad to have you on. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a while since we published that poem, and it's great to see you have this new book. Um, and I'll hold it up. This is um, All of This Was Once Underwater. And uh, here's the, the cover on the screen, too. But it's a beautiful book, beautifully illustrated as well. Uh, do you want to start out with a poem so we can get a feel for, for how, it, how it goes? Yes, yeah. I am going to start with a poem called uh, Floridian Says, I Could Never Live in a Place Like That. And I guess just for background, so everyone knows what the whole manuscript is about, basically, it's grounded in Utah with like Utah scenery and history, and then uh, mixed with speculative fiction. So then the main characters are their aliens in Utah, because of course there are aliens in Utah. And then there's a monster who lives in the Great Salt Lake and has for centuries. And then there's a human woman. So this uh, kind of sets the scene for Utah and its weirdness. And I actually have uh, had a friend who is from Florida who said, when I was telling her about Utah, I, I could never live in a place like that. So, A few creeks scattered about, the sound of rounded pebbles and mallards behind gates, a set of sprinklers, the bathroom faucet, the only ways to wet July knuckles. An instant after Brigham Young decreed in high fever, this is the right place. A number of his saints said, no. Spun their wagon wheels and blistered heels, against cracks in the dirt, to return east or urge their oxen forward, to promises of something gold, something moist. This place is a high mountain desert, a desert. The aliens don't care how many pollens itch the throat, or if you see begonias that thrive. Those things stay alive because someone hoses them down every day. Every day someone hoses them down. 
And that was one of the early poems uh, from the book of Floridian Says. I could never live in a place like that. Um, from All of This Was Once Underwater, poems by Natalie Padilla Young. And, um, and wonderful art, too. And that's really an interesting thing, too. How did this book come to be? Because it's, uh, it's not the usual book. It's hardcover. And then you know, it's not just like that there's cover art and a few pieces. There's art throughout the book, which we'll see as we go through poems. Um, so how did that art come to be? And how did the book come to be? I mean, adding, like, like taking the backdrop of Utah and Mormonism, which is interesting enough, and then throwing aliens and like some kind of Loch Ness monster into the mix um, is, is just, I've never seen a book like it before. So how did, how did this book come together? <laughs> It's all, it's very weird. It's weird, um, but Utah is very weird and um, our history is weird. I grew up in Utah. Um, I grew up Mormon. And um, I guess in a way I've always been kind of grappling with the fact, like trying to figure out, especially once I started to leave the Mormon faith, um, there's a lot of ghosts that will haunt you if you really believed in something, anything, I think, and decide it's not true anymore. Um or true for you at least. Um, so this book started honestly with like a really weird dream I had about, and it's the next poem will, that I will read, I think, um, that has a line that became the title of the book, um, where it was just kind of like this weird apocalyptic dream where I, uh, myself in the dream found a giraffe under snow. And it was just like, I don't know. It was just this image that couldn't leave me, that wouldn't leave me, and um, you know, not dreams aren't actually very interesting when you tell them to someone else. But um, I wrote this poem, and it didn't say that it was a dream. It just mentions finding a giraffe under snow, and um, my writing group at the time responded really well to it. They just said, "This is so different from what you've been writing," and it really like hits something emotionally, even though. It's very uh, sort of surreal. And um, somebody in my group said, you, know, you should write a series of apocalyptic poems. And I thought I had never written a series of poems before. And I was like, I don't know. But nothing else was coming. So I just started <laughs> writing about aliens and the monster that was here in Utah. And it just kind of kept going. At first, I thought it would be, oh, just like 10 poems, a chapbook. And then it became this whole manuscript. And I had been sending it. I mean, the manuscript took me over 10 years to finish the whole thing. And like you said, that um, poem that was in Rattle, I mean, it was over 10 years ago that it was in Rattle. And that was one of the first poems that I wrote for the manuscript as well. So um, anyway, it just kind of evolved and became really about Utah and place and a loss of faith in these characters and in ecology. And um, I know, I don't think a lot of people probably know this unless they are familiar with Utah or from Utah, but um, especially in Salt Lake, the capital city in Northern Utah, the air quality is really terrible, uh, especially in the winter and in the summer because it's a valley and everything just gets trapped in there. Um, so it's a beautiful, beautiful state, but it has a lot of air quality issues and obviously water issues because we are a desert throughout the state. So, um, after, but after I had been sending this out for a mm -hmm. while, um, quarter press accepted a few of the, a few of these poems for, 
a magazine they had just started. And he asked to see the entire manuscript and then he accepted it. And what he and what the, that publisher does is all of their books have um, are illustrated. And so they uh, hire an illustrator to illustrate the book. Oh, wow. So uh, this time with the illustrator, um, she had never worked with Quarter Press before, but she had reached out and said, I'd like to work with you guys. Um, Chris Smith, who runs Quarter Press, he and I had been talking about what illustrations might be good to fit the manuscript, like a kind of style. And uh, we looked at her. Perf- we looked at her portfolio and saw that um, she had some some that some samples that we thought might work well, like the line work and what we were thinking stylistically. And so uh, he reached out to Maxi, and it's Maximilian Spies is what it is because she's a German. Mm-hmm. So that character is like a double S at the end of her name. Um, Anyway, she, we had some conversations over email and then she basically just started sketching and she sent the sketches back and I was just blown away from the very beginning. So the illustration, I think she did an amazing job, especially considering she's never been to Utah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a beautiful minimalism to it. Um, And and it really evokes a lot of emotion. I think this, uh, the, there's just a lot of, um, sort of a it fits the sort of creepy feeling of a lot of the poems and those strange themes too and the the post-apocalypticness and the aliens coming in it's a really fascinating use of of poetry reminds me of a few people who've done like comic book poems um we had the we had that uh we helped uh we published the stairs appear in a hole outside of town um which was made by a as a comic book by um julian can't remember his name but uh but a beautiful comic book came out of that one poem in which the poem was illustrated out through and uh and this has the same kind of feel where it might appeal maybe to to more people who don't usually read poetry just because of the art too so it's a great synergy between the two um you mentioned that that the poem the book came from a dream i think that poem was capital reef right uh, do you want yeah, to read that uh, yes okay that'd be perfect capital reef which, for those of you who don't know, is a national park here in Utah. Now miles from any real city, roaming in a red rock bowl, she recalls a time at 13 when a stray attacked. Walking the seafloor, boots fill with red dust, rusty animal heads, pioneers, tombstones. Commitment, not an option. No way for her to describe, to know how. Still, Its giant departure is clear, a pulse outlined in chalk. She claims old bites are good reason to give up an adopted dog after six days. The look in the canine eyes, endless. The stare, like finding a giraffe body under a skiff of snow. Breaking things off, keeping things up, all of this was once underwater. And there's a title poem, uh, that last line, all of this was once underwater, which of course was true um, for Utah. Um, the Great Salt Lake is the remnants of Lake Bonneville. And there is just something, everybody in the comments already is talking about how beautiful and weird <laughs> Utah feels, <laughs> like on every level. I mean, it's just a, it's one of those places I've been there several times because it's like a ro- easy road trip from Southern California. And I mean, the parks are just amazingly gorgeous, the scenery, the the lava flow parks. I love those ones too. The, the, 
the dunes that are like the uh, uh what's that one called the the dunes um they're uh i don't know the it's just, yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah there's just so many really interesting places all the red rock canyons and all that and then there's just this feeling though you can feel that it was once underwater which is a really interesting thing. And then the connection too to Mormonism and, and how, you know, Joseph Smith, who came from where I grew up, uh, Palmyra, New York, all the way to Utah um, on that, on that, you know, wagon train and then stopped there of all places. Um, it, it's just such a strange, interesting place. Did you grow up there or are you? Uh, uh, yeah, I grew up in Northern Utah. So I grew up in Bountiful, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And and what was it? What was your experience like um, of the state? I mean, you mentioned moving away from the church. Um, what, was that a big part of your life early on? And and you know what was what was it like growing up in Utah? Yeah, so I think growing up in Bountiful, I mean, it probably is very different than growing up in Salt Lake, even though they're quite close together. Probably, especially now. Uh, but when I was growing up, Bountiful was probably. Nine, I mean, my high school, I think, was 90% Mormon. So, um, and I grew up Mormon, and I was, uh, I didn't start to have what a lot of Mormons call a faith crisis uh, until my early 20s. And so, until then, I really believed it. Like, I was all in. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think in, in some ways, it helped me feel like I belonged. Because the other thing about Bountiful is it's very homogenous in that it's like very white Mormon. Um, and growing up with, uh, I like to say that I am half Puerto Rican and half Brigham Young because my dad is a great, great grandson of Brigham Young. And then my mom is Puerto Rican. So I, even though it sounds kind of crazy, like I was really the odd man out uh, just in terms of being a, a brown person mm-hmm. in where I grew up. So I guess I guess I always felt like an other without even maybe even realizing it to some extent. And so the church did help me feel like I belonged. Mm-hmm. And I think I really threw myself into it for a long time. Um, probably so much so that I felt like it was so true that when I saw the cracks, that was kind of it mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, it's like a, I feel like an outsider within an outsider culture because the Mormon, you know, in Utah and the Mormon church is sort of its own enclave within the United States. Was that something that a reason that you started writing poetry in the first place, that that feeling of, you know, otherness and trying to make sense of that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think maybe now, yeah. Um, at the time, I always say it's kind of like, I didn't choose poetry. Poetry chose me in a way. I, uh, my undergrad, I majored in art and then, um, and I'm a graphic designer. That's what I do by, by day. And then um, I took a couple of, a few poetry writing classes my junior and senior year of college. And I was getting a minor in English, but um Uh, it just kind of stuck. Like I had been writing some fiction really (laughs) in some intro classes and I, and poetry, I was just so much better at poetry, so much quicker. Um, Like it was just kind of immediate. I was a lot better at it than I was at fiction. Um, And I just had some professors who really supported me and said, you know, you should keep going with this. Then I also had a professor um, 
in my one of my poetry writing classes who made us write five poems a week and like that's a lot that's a lot of poems a week you know mm-hmm. uh, it, but the great thing about that was that it became a habit and from then on like i just didn't stop so and have you always had this interest in um you know in cryptozoology and, and sort of the strangeness aliens things like that i mean i imagine so because all the work i've seen of yours is that which i love i mean i have one there, there's so few sort of genre poetry books i just found a book sh- on my shelf for the first time in years that's been sitting there that was like um some of the roswell incident i think it's called and uh, so there are a few books like that and uh, that you know have the ufos and stuff but i'm just always been a fan of it since um you know, I've always had insomnia, and so what, listening to that Art Bell show late at night, that's one of the sort of ways this Rattlecast is formatted, just um, having those like long form, just talk about things, whatever comes up kind of style um, that really comes from wishing I could be like Art Bell. And um, so I just love all of the, you know, the cryptids and the Loch Ness monsters and stuff, even if you don't believe them and, and the aliens. And even though I think the UFO right now is sort of like nonsense, all the UFO talk, it's still fascinating. Is that something that you've always been fascinated with? It's just there's a way that it opens up your mind to possibility to think about stuff that's probably not true, but could be. Yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff has always fascin- fascinated me. Yes. I um a big I'm a big fan of like the X-Files, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. um you know, a lot of other stuff like that. So, and I think I didn't get into like those when they first came out, but it probably was my early 20s when I started watching all of that and um so it makes sense it all sort of worked into this book. It sort of, uh, in some ways, like took the place of what uh, what could be, what is there beyond us, um, if it's not, mm-hmm. you know, this typical Christian God or yeah. the afterlife. So, hmm. yeah, I, I have always been interested in that stuff, and I think. Um, Someone told me again, another one of my, uh, my professors said, your generation is just loves like speculative things. And I think at the time I was like, what is speculative? (laughs) You know, and then I turn around and write this whole speculative book. But that's interesting, too. I wonder, you know, does me both our interest in that have to do with sort of you know, wanting to have a faith, which I'd never had a faith, but I wanted to. And then realizing that I couldn't, it was just like impossible for me. Like I went to a church for a year or two as a teenager, like trying so hard to find some kind of sense of belief. I just don't have that gene. If there is a God gene, like Richard Dawkins says. And then if that's not true, you know, I mean, even like, um, you know, the Mormon church, um, you know, with its, it's a really fantastical story of, um, you know, Jesus coming to America after, um, when I worked at a group home, um, for uh, mentally ill adults, I used to take, uh, the residents there to the Hill Cumorah pageant in Palmyra. Cause it was right by, and it was like a fun thing to do. And just the, the pageantry of that. And it was just such a fascinating story. And like, that is as good as any other story. And so like every story becomes interesting once you don't focus on one. And so like you can enjoy the, the Mormon story and then you can enjoy like Nessie, the Loch Ness monster or something too. And, and you know, the, the sort of the world splinters apart. Do you, do you think that that is a big part of it about like, you know, if this whole thing that I believed my whole life wasn't true, um, then anything could be. So let's explore it all. Cause that, that's how it felt for me. Yeah. That's really interesting. No one has said that to me before, but 
I do. That actually really rings true that it, um, like the foundation, like you're saying, the seed of Mormonism is a really fantastical story. Um, and if that could be true, I mean, why not aliens? Why not a monster in the Great Salt Lake? So, I mean, perhaps my whole life, I have just, like, if you're open to this story, why not all of these others? And if this one isn't necessarily true, then, like, let's swap them out or let's intermingle them and see what happens. Yeah, it's fascinating how that happens, like, for everything, you know? Like, once you stop believing the news, too, it's like, well, if these yeah. stories aren't true, then then what, you know, what might be? Um, let, let's do some more poetry. Let's do uh, the next one up. Okay. I think... Is that the monster one? Um, yeah, the monster sings. An ambush of major and okay. minor. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move on to the monster in the Great Salt Lake. And this one is called An Ambush of Major and Minor, The Monster Sings. An underwater witness, he felt the wagons and handcarts, the Mormons rumbling, the valley, and knew everything about their new ground, knew the square inches riddled with salt had once been his living room. He felt the building, the thunks and thuds of lean-tos and pews. The swift start of empire, he heard generations and prayers being made, heard their songs, the combined power, hundreds of voices singing Zion, one giant desperate beauty. Over a hundred years and still the notes linger just below the surface, knock his chest in sleep, tumble from his mouth as he swims, pains of faith and cheer on repeat. These songs he sings to a thrumming, a glug, to an end. And that was an ambush of major and minor, and the monster sings. And then we have a picture, uh, this drawing of the monster, um, kind of a skeletal horse. I, I should describe the pictures for people only listening to. It's sort of two skeletons, a man and a woman, um, riding this skeletal horse, pulling a cart, um, with a child down there too as well. Um, and then of course in this sort of stark, uh, trichromatic, um, artwork too, um, by the artist, um, Maximilian, um, what did, how do you say? <laughs> it's like a double S. So it's like Spies. Spies. Okay. Yeah. Maximilian Spies. I shouldn't know how to say that. But yeah, that's beautiful, beautiful artwork too, to go with that poem. Um, so, um, you know, everyone's talking about religion now in the chat window and it, it is interesting. So you mentioned, you know, losing your faith. Was it any certain thing that happened um, that, that, you know, was there a certain like line of thinking that, that led you away from that? Um, or was it sort of accumulation of things? Was there any incident that happened that, that, made that come to be? Um, honestly, especially, so when I was growing up, the internet wasn't really a thing until the end of my high school and beginning of college in particular. So I think now a lot of people have much more access to the history of the church and, you know, what actually happened. But uh, when I was growing up, the it was basically like you either read church-approved things or it's anti Mm -hmm. um it's anti-mormon literature but uh really i just started reading actual history of that time when joseph smith was you know closing the church and the uh, saints were trying to come over and find a safe place and cross over to utah and um that history was very 
different than what I had been taught. So I think um, once I started to read, and I guess specifically about Joseph Smith, once I started to read historically about him, he is the foundation of Mormonism in my mind. Like he was the original prophet. And once I started to feel like he wasn't a good person, mm-hmm. everything cracked for me. Mm-hmm. And I, and that, that was kind of that in terms of my faith. Um, it took a lot longer to actually be able to emotionally be um, let go of it, I guess. Yeah. Do you want to tell the story of Joseph Smith? Just, I don't know if people know it. I don't know how common knowledge that is, but the, um, you know, the the tablets and the spectacles. I mean, I just love, I was in his house. <laughs> it's neat to, to go yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, Joseph Smith is a fascinating character. Um, he was obviously a real person, but everyone said, everyone, like the historical documents and any biographies of him say how gregarious and charismatic he was. And I, you know, I think that's probably true of anyone who would start something so that would become so big and you could get such a following, but he basically grew up very poor in Palmyra. Um, and at the time it was a real, what they call the spiritual awakening in America. So the story of Joseph Smith sounds kind of crazy now, but at the time everyone was kind of, it was a real trend for people to be having these big revelations and um, start and people were starting churches all over the place back East uh, in America. So Joseph Smith had a vision and he was in what they called the sacred grove, um, which was, I guess, right in your hometown. And they, uh, he saw, depending on which version of the story is because, it is because there are several versions, but the end version is that he saw um, Jesus Christ and God the Father in the sacred grove when he was praying because he said, none of these churches seem true. Um, I need to know what it is true. Um, I am really, it's tearing me up. So the story is that they came and they said, you know, none of none of these churches are true. And basically like you are going to be the one to bring restore the gospel in these final days and the final days meaning that um, Jesus Christ is going to come again his second coming and that the people who follow the true church which Joseph Smith founded um, will be saved and that it will be the mission to save as many other people as as you Joseph Smith and his congregation could mm-hmm. and then he also in addition to that so he you know, there's lots of years and many things that happen, but he he does start the church and he gets quite a following. Um, and he also ends up, I'm sure most everyone's heard of the Book of Mormon, which is um, two Mormons. It is the like a new set of scriptures and the only absolutely true set of scriptures. So um, the Bible, the Mormon Mormons believe in the Bible, but um the Book of Mormon is more true. Mm-hmm. So he found some gold plates that the um, there's somebody called the angel Moroni came to him one night and showed him where these golden plates were. And like you were mentioning, Tim, there were people who came over from Jerusalem, Israel, the old world, and came over to the new Americas. And they were called the Nephites. And then 
the Lamanites eventually, which the uh, Mormons believe are the Native Americans. That um, <laughs> it all gets very complicated. It's <laughs> quite complicated. I'm sorry, everyone. This is not making sense. Um, anyway, he the they created the this scripture in, on golden plates while they were here in the New Americas, buried them. When, a, when the uh, evil Lamanites took over and were trying to ruin all of God's work, these plates were buried. In the, and then Joseph Smith, many, many years later, is told by the angel Moroni, who was one of, one of these early Native Americans, uh, where to find them. He finds these golden plates and he translates them with what is called the Yerm and Thummim which is what you were talking about, the stone and um, like these translating devices, which also at the time in America when Joseph Smith was around were not that weird. A lot of people had seer stones. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he translated these golden plates and created the Book of Mormon, yeah. which is uh, I think the that, ultimate. Scripture. I think that's a good summary because I wanted to get into that because it was so fascinating to me the first time I started hearing about, about Mormonism and that was that... Um, you know, the story is sort of what the kinds of stories that were in the Bible, you know, in the Old Testament, except just happening now. And so the idea that that is sort of invalid and strange now, when when back then it would have been something that we accept is, is true and something that really happened if you're a Christian. Um, it's just it's just so fascinating that, that it seems weird, even though it's not any weirder than anything else. And, and I just love that aspect that it sort of brings the weird forward, which is what we do with so many things. And so you can see in that story, the sort of like the, the you know, the, I don't know, that all the movement and all the visions and all the things that happen. Um, or just or just speculative stories that are that are being told and shared, and and there's this common thread through all of it, and through this and the X Files, you know, the truth is out there, and it all um, it's this just whole fa- this this just fabulous palette of uh, humanity in all of these stories that I just love, and so to be drawn from that into um, you know speculative poetry is just such an interesting thing. Um, when you left the church, um, was there any kind of sense of um, you know, like being shunned or being, were people upset that you did? Um, is, is that something? Cause you know, I know, you know, in our town, we actually have a lot of Mormons that live here and they don't mind that I, I'm not Mormon at all. And, you know, I used to play basketball with them every Thursday night at the church and they're just wonderful people. Um, and I used to hope that, you know, since I've, I've heard that they store a lot of food, if case there is a natural, you know, big disaster that they'll help feed me too. So <laughs> that's one of the reasons for, for being friendly with all them. But, um, but, but there, but there's no sense of like, um, you know, apostate, you're going to hell type thing. It was just a very friendly sort of feel, but was it, what was that your experience like for that when you left? Yeah. So I think, um, Utah is sort of like it is the predominant religion and it also is a culture because this is sort of like the Mecca. Um, so I think if you are in somewhere else, it's a very different, it's very different culturally than if you're in Utah. Hmm. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, where I grew up was so Mormon that um, all, almost all of my friends from high school and growing up were Mormon. So at the time in my early 20s, when I was reading this history and going, uh-oh, um, 
I just basically, it was, it was like a don't ask, don't tell policy for me. I just wanted to hide from it because in some ways I felt really ashamed. Uh, I didn't, and I, uh, but some, most of my friends, like I had some people who would write me letters and be like, I just want, I just want you to be happy, you know, like, I hope you're doing the right things, et cetera. Um, but mostly it was my family, I think, that were the most disappointed. And you know, part of that's just because in Mormon doctrine, it's, you know, the families are forever. You get sealed in the temple as a family, which means you will be together forever. Mm-hmm. And if, But if somebody like me falls away, um, that breaks the seal and you will not be with them. Um, it gets more complicated after that because there's different levels of heaven um, and they could come see you. But um, in Sunday school, I learned they won't want to. Mm. <laughs> so, um, hmm. uh, so it's really sad. I think uh, I'm the oldest of five kids mm. and um, all of my siblings were pretty much still in it at the time. And they... Um, you know, everyone I think was really sad and disappointed in me and no one really said much to my face, but I could feel it and I just didn't want to talk about it. So yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> I avoided it basically. Yeah. Well, it's such a hard thing. I mean, to go through and then, and then how much has writing this book been a healing process about that? Because, um, you know, in, uh, Richard, uh, Westheimer, um, asked a question too. Let me pull that up. It's, it's along the lines of what I was going to say, so I might as well use his words. Um, he said, uh, where do you find yourself in these poems? Or what did you discover as the series of poems unfolded? And, and that's, it, was it something that, that brought, you know, made sense of that turmoil, which you must have been going through? Yeah, so I didn't realize it when I started writing these poems, but it has absolutely been therapeutic to write this book. Um, I think it, you know, it obviously changed a lot because I didn't even realize in the beginning that I was writing a book. Um, but yes, it has helped me work through a lot. And because I wrote it over 10 years of time, I also just have grown up a lot, I guess, mm-hmm. um, in that. And things have changed a lot, too. I mean... <laughs> A lot of, not just in Mormonism, but across the religious board, people are leaving um, and are not necessarily taking part in their religious, in going to church. So um, there's a lot more available on the internet. There's so many, um, what they call former former Mormon podcasts and all of these things that you you can listen or read about or hear people who had the same experience as you and feel um, like you have some camaraderie, a community. Whereas in the beginning, I felt really alone. Like it was just me failing. Uh, So, but these, but writing poetry, I think has always felt very therapeutic for me and writing this book. I, when people, I had my sister-in-law asked me if I was the alien if my husband was the alien or if the alien was something else. And I said, you know, I, the alien's not any one thing, but it's all of those things. And I would say all of these characters in this book, um, the monster, the alien, the woman, they're all me and not me. Mm-hmm. 
So. Yeah, it's really interesting. And the next poem up, um, the flamingo on the shore, Pink Floyd, an aviary escapee. It just even already on page 13, getting to that, I, I was already thinking, you know, is it flamingo might be you, the aviary escapee. Um, how <laughs> much, uh, you know, is that, is that a symbolism that you think of? Or is, is the poem just come out sort of spontaneously and um, you, know, you let whatever your imagination creates, create? Yeah, so that's really funny. I had never thought of that. But yeah, that's it. it totally metaphorically could be that. Um, there is an aviary up in Salt Lake called the Tracy Aviary, and a flamingo actually escaped from the aviary and would go to the Great Salt Lake seasonally. So it is, you know, Pink Floyd, this flamingo is a factual bird who actually happened. And I, um, for parts of this, I just kind of looked up history of the Great Salt Lake and different things that happened. And I found out about him and it just stuck with me. So, mm -hmm. well, why don't you go ahead and read it? Okay. Yeah, I will. The Flamingo on Shore, Pink Floyd, an aviary escapee. Through the water, the monster catches from the corner of his eye a tall pink bird. Seasonal, alone at the lake like the monster, but chooses when to fly away and when to stay. The monster stares for hours, lanky legs, thin gray stems, fluorescent knees, one at a time, holding the bright body. While it sleeps, while it filters brine shrimp through salt water, more pink with each feeding. Sometimes it's the most color he's seen. Sometimes it's the only color he sees. Yeah, so I just thought that worked fascinatingly as a metaphor for for that journey that we were talking about. Um, you know, with the monster maybe you know staying in for all of you know mythology and like dogma or something, and you know, and and the one flamingo standing out from that, uh, then you know, trapped on the on the lake <laughs> too. Um, what can you tell us about the history? Because you know the Great Salt Lake's fascinating too. Um, just as a geological phenomenon, it's uh, it's shrinking. Um, do you know the details of how fast that's happening and the ecological? Because uh, that's part of the book too. The ecological disaster that's going on um, in the Great Lake and and the causes for that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So interestingly, when I started this book. I mean, I think the Great Salt Lake shrinking was a concern for people who really understood what was happening, but it wasn't in the news and it wasn't like um, imminent danger, basically. But it had been shrinking for a long time. And um, when I first started researching it, kind of like I had heard, heard things like, oh, we don't know why it's shrinking, but we do know why it's shrinking. Um, there's a lot of industry that uses that water um and a part of it's that part of it's farming you know the agriculture taking the water before it actually hits the the uh stream that will go into the lake and then you know just global warming in general not getting enough uh precipitation which you know like we are in a high mountain desert so we don't get a lot of it anyway but we're getting even less like everyone around. Um, a lot of you probably saw that there have been a lot of articles about the Great Salt Lake in the last oh, couple of years saying that it is, it will be horrible if it does dry out. There have been other lakes that have dried out, not necessarily a salt lake, 
but um, obviously all the migratory birds and everything that comes through that um, everything's connected to the whole ecosystem, whether you want to think that that bird matters to you or not, it all does, of course. Um, and then, but then beyond that, if that lake dries up, there will be wind that is not caught by the lake that then pulls up toxins that have been laying at the bottom of the lake for, you know, centuries because that is, it is an ancient lake and it will get into the air, which is, uh, like I mentioned before, the air is already terrible in the Salt Lake area, that valley. And if, but once that toxic air hits and is blowing around, I mean, it is, a lot of people will not be able to live there. Mm-hmm. So it is, um, it's dire. Yeah. We have a huge snowfall this year, which has um, basically bought us time. Mm-hmm which is wonderful. And the legislators have passed a few things this year, which help, but are not long-term. Yeah. Solution. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's something similar happened in here in Southern California with the Salton sea, which is really the biggest <laughs> by area man-made disaster in history of the world, I think, which was trying to cut um, an aqueduct um, through and it spilled and the entire thing flooded in to make this Salton Sea, which was and they thought, oh, we'll make the most of it and make it this beautiful paradise, uh, you know, vacation place. And then slowly and slowly, the salinity came up and up and the acidity came up and up as more water evaporated. And eventually there was a massive fish die off. And now, you know, it's a complete ghost town. Fascinating to see. Um, but you can smell it from here <laughs> some days if the wind's blowing right. And it is like, what, 100 miles away? Um, and so, you know, so the thought of the, the Great Salt Lake, something like that happening for that whole region of the country would just be terrible in so many ways. So uh, definitely very important um, a part of ecology there to try to try to find a way to save it. Um, yeah, so all that swirls in this book, which I'm trying to, like, get around all the stuff that's in here. But it's fascinating. Let's hear another poem. Okay. All right. We're going to move to the alien. And the alien, um, I don't, I didn't mention this before, but the alien and the the woman, the she in these poems, they end up in a relationship in this book. So the alien is obsessed with water. And I would say like the fourth character in this book is water, the lack of it or it or its presence. So the alien is obsessed with doing experiments on water throughout the book and, um, This poem is called The Alien Takes the Human's Tears. It's based on a photo series by Rosalind Fisher um, called Topography of Tears. And this photographer took uh, tears in different circumstances and put them under the microscope. So, and they would look very differently depending on the circumstance. So if it was a tear of sadness or a tear of laughter or a tear of confusion, etc. So that is what this this poem bases itself on. The alien takes the human's tears, places them under a microscope to reveal primal language. Dehydrated and inspected, the salt formation a suspect of circumstance. Grief crystallizes in empty streets, the dismantled brick walls of a looted city. Onions plant a fern quilt in a snowflake sheet Geometries, hard edges, and the blocks burst from drips of laughter. 
ice, metal work, and coral collide to build a blueprint encompassed by crowds dispersing. In the uncertainty of change, and with a blink, a slide of the lid waters a cutaway of earth. Roots reaching beyond human experience, like a drop of the ocean. And that was um, the alien takes the human's tears. And then here's the, the artwork that goes along with it. You can see the alien and the she character um, and uh, sort of embracing. And then in the background, kind of these crystalline uh, structures, which are the tears, one assumes. So um, more beautiful artwork. And all of this was once underwater. Um so, so how does the, the alien play into all this? I mean, we get that we started out, you know, with the, the monster in the Great Salt Lake and the aliens have this obsession with water, which sort of, I mean, it just all symbolically so ties in with so many different things. How did the alien figure emerge in your writing process? Was it something that came early on or, or and why, how? Yeah, so that's really interesting. I, I almost can't remember exactly how it happened, but I think like in a very literal way when uh, my writing group member slash friend said, you know, you should write a ser- an apocalyptic series. Like, this is really interesting. I think I was like, what is apocalyptic? <laughs> and, and thought, oh, aliens, like aliens coming. Because there's, you know, there's so many stories of aliens coming and um, conquering us or... Um, us like there's not i don't know that there are a lot of things where the aliens are stories where the aliens are actually trying to live with us and understand um and so i don't not even sure how the alien popped up but um i think i did at the time was just thinking about um i had several friends who were just in these relationships with humans and these humans were not good for them. And they were making these terrible decisions. And I think I just thought, what if they decided to be in a relationship with an alien? <laughs> and like, what would that look like? And how would that be good? And how would that be bad? Mm-hmm. So, and then also I did think, you know, because uh, the whole, like you were saying, like the Mormons are like this, these outsiders in America, and then I felt like an outsider among them. And then the alien is just an obvious sort of metaphor for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just, it's interesting how all of the, you know, it's sort of like you let your, your symbolic imagination run wild and like put all these pieces into like a pot and then let them simmer and stew and see what would happen with this book. And, and it's interesting that it does come together in a, in a way that's like, you know, poetic and that it's slightly beyond my grasp reading the book, you know, in the same way, a great poem is like, like just out of reach. Um, it feels, you know, like the, the metaphors all swirl around each other and, and stir together in such an interesting way. Um, what was your writing process like, like on the actual, like gritty level of a writer? Um, were you, you know, once you had this project, did you sit down to write these poems and, and did you like pull out things that you wanted to do? Um, or how did it, um, you know, how did, how did the, the topics come to be and, and how did you sit down and make them into poems? Yeah. So I think in the beginning, I really was just like, what does this look like at, at all? Um, and then once I had my characters, um, I 
started to write poems, I started to get in their heads and think, you know, what, what do they want to do? What do they want to see? What do, what are their questions or what is their, and what is their background and what of that is interesting? And so, like I said, obviously some of it's me and things that I was questioning or things that I was thinking about and worried about. And um, it's just a lot more interesting <laughs> to have um, my worries about the environment come through an alien or come through a character. Um, so in some ways it bought me a lot of space to be able to talk about things in a more interesting way than I would be able to through my own voice. Mm -hmm. Um, and then once I had a few and I started taking them to, you know, because it took so long to do this whole thing, I had different writing groups and we were living in Salt Lake and then we moved to Cedar city, which if people don't know, Salt Lake's, you know, the capital city of Utah, which is more northern Utah. And we uh, moved to Cedar City, which is southern Utah, really, uh, which is more the Red Rock. And Cedar City is also a smaller town, much smaller town. So I had a, anyway, from both of my writing groups, I got questions and suggestions about what they thought would be interesting to see next. And Mm -hmm. some of those things I would disregard and some of those things did become poems and then as the manuscript became more fleshed out um it was about filling gaps and what would hold it together so it did kind of evolve in terms of how things were written and um, then what needed to be written so towards the end um i think a lot of the like literal mormon things started being pulled more in because I think I was avoiding it Hmm. and um, people said you need it. You need to fill in some of the uh, historical gaps for people. Yeah. Well, um, let's uh, let's talk more about that in a second, but let's do another poem. Um, I think we have three left to do. So do you want to do the sacrament meeting? Um, Or I can do the one that was in rattle, which I skipped. Yeah, that'd be good too. Sure. Okay. So this one is the poem that was in Rattle, and it was one of the first poems that was uh, that I wrote for this series, and that was accepted, and it really made me feel like legitimized, like I can do, you know, that I can do this. So, oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, it's called "Discussing Earth Insects." A praying mantis perches on the coffee shop doorframe. The alien is intrigued. He takes out the human's camera. Look at how sturdy its skin is, how mean. Like it will reach out and slice anything that gets too close. He wants to know where insects come from, where the aliens come from. Insects don't really exist. He wants to know what is the difference between a moth and butterfly. She doesn't know the science behind classification, the pieces and parts, something about antennae, Smooth club versus pipe cleaner, fuzzy versus shaved. They are not small birds. No, no bones. She explains how she sees. A moth can't resist light. The alien considers the distinction. So I am the butterfly and you are the moth. And that was discussing Earth's insects, which first appeared in Rattle number 38. And then you can see the artwork that goes along with that too. There's a... um, you know, that this alien and human couple again um, 
contemplating this moth on uh, on the cup at Starbucks. So, <laughs> so another very interesting poem from uh, All of This Was Once Underwater by Natalie Padilla Young. And uh, PMB asks uh, if the characters came first or did the, they come through the writing process? Like, like, and what was the actual writing process like, too? I mean, were you, you know, f- the, the main kind of thing people do usually is like free write a whole bunch of stuff and then carve it up into a poem. Is, is that your process? And, and, and did the characters come first or did they come in that process? Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, like I said, the first couple of poems sort of came from that weird dream I had. And then um, when I started just thinking about what an apocalyptic world, my apocalyptic world could look like, um, I think I pretty quickly was like, well, there's already this woman, this human woman. And then, like, it sounds so juvenile to be like, and then there should be an alien and a moth. Um, but I mean, really thinking about the great salt lake and how it is just this, there aren't very many salt lakes in left in the world and that the, there have, you know, like any lake, there is the lore and the legend of that there was possibly a monster in it. And I think because I had been watching a lot of, um, sci-fi kind of, pop culture stuff it just popped it popped into my head and I just ran with it so then it really I the characters I think did mostly come first after the very basis of the foundation and then I just filled them in mm-hmm. yeah yeah interesting and you know the stories work for a reason like if we have these myths you know the man with a thousand faces the way the story operates works the way that it does because we're drawn to those kind of stories so I think there's nothing childish about it it's a deep way you know deep motive storytelling that has a lot of value to humanity um a little note um odd writings george pistana who has a um poem in the uh in the summer issue if you saw that but he likes palindromes and anagrams and things like that and he points out that your name natalie um, is an anagram for at alien <laughs> that's perfect i didn't think of that thanks george <laughs> um that's amazing so so um so what are your favorite in this sort of research you've done and what what is your favorite sort of paranormal strange story that you've come across? Is there one in particular maybe that you haven't written about yet or um or I don't know, is there something that you're you're particularly drawn to? I think I it feels to me like the ones that you're using here are sort of based on the needs of the plot of the book and the way that the symbolism is working and inter- interchanging. But is there something that like didn't like fit the book that you just love cuz there's just you know so many fascinating things out there in the world. Yeah, there are a lot of fascinating things and I think one of the really things that I loved about researching for this book was just learning more about the Great Salt Lake and its history and there's just a lot of weird things that happened especially when those early settlers came to Utah and were trying to figure out how to sustain themselves because it is a desert so it wasn't that easy to grow crops and things here but um, this actually is in the book. There is a timeline of the Great Salt Lake that's broken up throughout the book. And those um, are all, ac- they're all facts. They're real. So, um, and I guess it could still be folklore. It may not actually be real, but did come up in articles in legitimate places like 
uh, the Salt Lake Tribune, um, that there was somebody who, that they planted some whales in the Great Salt Lake. Oh. <laughs> They're hoping to have it for a tourist attraction. And of course, the salinity of the Great Salt Lake is, is too high for most life. There's hardly anything that can live in there. Um, and so I don't know what happened to those dolphins or the whales. I'm sure they probably, you know, passed away. But mm -hmm. then there's um, some sightings of people thinking they see the the dolphins later and that who knows what it really was because the, there's no way those dolphins live to reproduce. But that then they also had tried to plant clams and mussels for food and none of those survived mm -hmm. either. But it is really interesting to imagine because we're so landlocked other than this Salt Lake, which is also landlocked, that people are trying to grow things that you would get if you were on the ocean side and have attractions for people to come and see these marine animals in the middle of the desert. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a poem that, the you know, the missing dolphins of the Great Salt Lake, <laughs> where they went, you can just see that starting to play out itself. Um, let's do another poem. We have two left. Um, yeah, the sacrament meeting is next. Okay. So this is called Sacrament Meeting Started the Three Hours of Church on Sunday. And it's made up of uh, Mormon hymn, not the whole thing, but it has Mormon hymn titles throughout kind of building the poem. And these are also just kind of Christian hymn titles, too, because they're borrowed from uh, Christian faith. And so um, some of you, maybe whether you're in church or somewhere else, probably did the same thing, which when you were younger, add like, something at the end of titles to pass time. So we added, we used to add in the bathtub at the end of hymn titles during sacrament meeting to make things go by faster. But then you, you know, there's also like under the covers in the sheets that you could do after things. So sacrament meeting started the three hours of church on Sunday. A friend taught her how to pass the time, flip through the hymn book and add in the bathtub after any song title. How great thou art in the bathtub. Now let us rejoice in the bathtub. Did you think to pray in the bathtub? Know this, that every soul is free in the bathtub. An hour of speeches broken up by hymns, prayers, and eating Christ's blood and body, blessed white wonder bread, and a doll's cup of water for each worthy member. She no longer sits through church meetings or questions her questioning, though often hums those hymns around the house, slips holy and grain choruses into a tub of hot water. Ears immersed, she can hear the sounds of her own choir, the heart's ba-dum, 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 too fast for its own good. Rejoice, a glorious sound is heard in the bathtub. Rustling, empty stomach, gurgle escalates to a shout. Wishes of breath tunnel in and out, hard enough to simply sit still, then left to a porcelain amphitheater. Where can I turn for peace? In the bathtub, thuds whirl. Come along, come along, with all the power of heart and tongue. Maintenance of this submerged body, too tough, too much, master the tempest is raging. Not enough still, small whisper. Ye simple souls who stray, let us all press on. And that was sacrament meeting started 
the three hours of church on Sunday from all this was once underwater by Natalie Padilla Young. Um, and so now I'm curious about um, just the, the fact that this is sort of a, a speculative poetry book. I mean, there's the Science Fiction Poetry Association that does some stuff. Um, you know, there's some science fiction magazines that publish, um, you know, speculative poems like, you know, Clark's World and things like that. Um, how much um, have you sort of branched out from traditional poetry publishing and to, to found those places? And, and, and why do you think that more people don't write about this uh, you know about speculative things you know just genre poetry in general is such a you know uncommon thing for people to be doing yeah it's interesting i wonder if there's just a kind of an embarrassment about doing it because poetry has for a long time seemed like high seriousness in a way like you are writing most people you know there's like a saying that poetry is about two things love or death or both you know, um, which I think all of it probably can be <laughs> drilled down to that. But um, when I was first writing poetry, I hadn't been writing for very long, and people would ask me, what do you write about? And I would joke, like, I, it's like, I don't, like, how do I answer that question? Um, and I would joke, like, oh, I'm writing about um, dragons and witches. Mm-hmm. And so then I think when I actually was <laughs> monsters and aliens it felt really silly <laughs> mm-hmm. i felt like um it was not like a serious enough topic or mm-hmm. something or just like it was just so silly and who was going to read it even if they were good poems yeah as um saying that sounds so crazy and weird but um I do. I did publish. I mean, I would publish like you, like you guys had that call for speculative mm-hmm. poetry. And a lot of people, I think after you guys did that, I started seeing more and more people doing speculative calls for things. And honestly, my poems didn't often get picked up when I would send them for themed issues like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Um, which who knows why. But I did uh, mostly get them published in just regular journals for regular just their open calls for submissions um but i do think it these poems were not for everyone and a lot of people probably saw alien in the title and were immediately turned off um i guess but i do think it's becoming more and more acceptable and more and more people hopefully are starting to write that does seem like it's in the time since I started this to now, there are more and more people who have, uh, I see more and more poems that have some speculative features in them. So hopefully, and part of that may be too, like I was saying that my professor's like, oh, your generation loves (laughs) speculative things. Mm -hmm. And it may just be that um, we're more, you know, more people are more open to it now. And it doesn't seem like high silliness. It does seem like, be more behind it yeah i think it to me it seems like and, and you touched on that as a, a symptom of the academization of poetry you know that it's an academic pursuit and that's where it lives in so many places i had a professor at the university of rochester uh, sarah higley who is a serious like um, medieval scholar i think um you know that was her like sort of by day and then by night she was writing episodes of star trek 
um, under a pen name Sally Caves, which I just had to Google to make sure I got it right. But yeah, Sally Caves, and um, like she wrote in some of the characters and the and um, and you know she was one of the writers and she wrote um, you know articles about things like alien sex, like how sex would be for aliens. But then she couldn't do it under her regular serious professor name because talking about Beowulf was so much more serious than talking about aliens. And that always struck me as very odd. And I think eventually she sort of came out as like, oh, I have this like half of a whole CV that's doing all this other stuff that I'm not even like including. And, and she was having some classes finally, but for a long time she wasn't. And, and it's just it's just unfortunate because there's there's so much fascinating material out there in the human imagination. And uh, I think we should mine it all. And it's it's a lot of fun stuff, too. So um, so it's interesting to hear that that's coming out more. And I, and I hope it does more. You know, I'd always love to see more submissions along those regards and, um, and just more poems in general that, that do interesting, strange, surprising things. Um, but we're about out of time. Let's do uh, the last poem you had for us to wrap it up. Okay. Yes. This is the last poem in the book. And, um, the human woman, the she, she is obsessed with seeing the monster, like seeing some evidence of the monster. And so throughout the book, there are these poems of her really searching for the monster and looking for the monster. Uh, so here's the last poem of her trying to get a glimpse of him or more. Here is what's left of Lake Bonneville. She is determined to see Lock the creature in a still, share his looks with those who'll listen. She takes a handful of diced tuna, dabs the juice from the tin can on her collarbone. The lake is saltier than the sea, a pH between toothpaste and milk of magnesia. Salt can't be destroyed, won't dissipate or burn. All that can be done is grind the small crystals into dirt and watch it lose worth. This lesson she learned in Sunday school, spiritual point less poignant, even salt will sift its way to shore, the edges of his liquid home. One toe at a time, she dribbles fish puree until she is up to her earlobes. Empty cans bob near outstretched fists. Mosquitoes line her forehead, torso stripped, eyes closed, a lake housing a monster with nowhere else to go. Without a single outlet, it's up to the Earth's inventions now. Yeah, great last line of that book, too. Once again, this is um, all of this was underwater. And we have the, uh, it's the last image, too, um, is the cover image from, uh, from the book. Um, yeah, beautiful book by Natalie P.D. Young. Thanks so much for being a guest and sharing this. And I hope it inspired people to, you know, take you know, what they're interested in and their imaginations and, and run with it wild in a symbolic way, because uh, that's what you do here. And it's really fascinating reading. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely my pleasure. Yeah, once again, that was Natalie Padilla Young. You can find more of Natalie's work at natalieyoungarts.com. That's natalieyoungarts.com. Um, so find this book and much more there. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our open lines. So, um, Let's see. So tell you how to do it. I'll put up the screen right now. Um, first, email your poem to open mic. That's open mic at rattle.com or submit it using the submittable link if you like it considered for the uh, prompt poem of the month. Either way, I'll have those ready, but get them to me before you join. And then you're going to go on to the Zoom um, and share the poem if you like, but only if you'd like to share a poem because we have uh, the stream still runs right where it is. Uh, and. 
the best place to watch it is on YouTube or Facebook right there because you can see the poems as the poets read them. But if you would like to join and share a poem, follow the Zoom link and I'll pin it to the top on Facebook and YouTube um, and join me there and I'll see you in just a minute with more poetry. back thanks for your patience and like i said this is the open mic and the open mic can be anything you want it does not have to be based on the prompt it can be poems about current events it can be something you wrote recently it can be something you have published recently and want to share um anything you want to share for the next hour ish um will be fair game so feel free to join that zoom link and uh, share some poems but email it first to open mic that's open mic at rattle.com that way we can see what you're reading now the prompt for this week was right here Write a poem in the form of a letter to a, po- or to a favorite poet that includes a suggestion for them. So that was the prompt. Write a poem in the form of a letter to a favorite poet that includes a suggestion for them. Um, and I did this uh, in the minutes before the show. Um, so this is Letter to the Emperor for Wallace Stevens. And um, I think most people, it's one of the more famous poems in the... Um, you know, 20th century, the emperor of ice cream. And, um, I remember I was reading this not too long ago. Um, and, and remember thinking when I was a teenager reading it, like, wow, that's so insightful. And like, that's the blunt, cold truth, you know, that the, the only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. Meaning I, I think, um, I think it's accepted as the interpretation. Although it's a very elliptical kind of difficult to follow poem. The meaning being that we're all sort of chasing sweetness, um, and that's what life is. There's a life and death scene going on in that poem. And um, it's a very materialistic kind of cold, um, blunt truth about our animal bodies, I guess you could say, is the point of the Emperor of Ice Cream. And I thought, yo, that's a profound insight uh, back then. But now reading it again, I think, gosh, that's so naive. And I was, you know, sophomoric to believe that that was all there was to life at the time. So here is my response letter to the Emperor for Wallace Stevens. Gather up the scientists, their scientism. Give their flasks an acid bath. Shove the light back through its rigid prism. Flip the columns on the math. There is more to all than all that's seen. There is more to life than cold ice cream. As the leaflet bears a heavy drop of dew, the clouds part when we tell them to. Each half is sweet, each half is sweet. But we ate our eat, we eat to dream. There is more to life than cold ice cream. That is my response to The Emperor of Ice Cream by Wallace Stevens. And then I wanted to share this one. I was going to, this was a last minute poem. I wrote this one two um, uh, years ago, but it's perfect for this theme. And this is advice I need to start taking myself. So I'm going to read it here because I've been getting too like in my head with poems lately, trying to think about them instead of just like letting them happen, which is like annoying. And so this is uh, for Eric Campbell, who's one of my favorite poets and a really good friend of mine. And um, I was going to share this if I didn't come up with the poem, but I thought I think I'll share this because I think it's good advice for poetry just in general, and it's pretty short. This is advice to a better poet for Eric. Think buckshot, not the rifle, but the musket. Ear horn of powder, arm deep in black soot. Think flintlock and flash pan, muzzle blast, hollow point. Don't paint the rounds, don't ready the bayonet. No aim is necessary, nothing is true. Think percussion cap, any metal is shrapnel, any spark is lightning, be bottled, bottler. So that's my advice to poets in general. Um, just throw it out there and see what happens. No aim is necessary. Anyway, I got to start doing that because I've been 
I've been writing poems in my head before writing them, which is not a good practice. So anyway, um, let's go to the open lines now. And uh, Katie Dozier, who, of course, is the poems editor, is on a plane right now that's, like, landing in Houston. So if she can find an internet connection fast enough, she's going to join to share hers. If not, I'll read it later. But in the meantime, let's go to um, Carla Schwartz, who's the first poem up. Hi. Hi. How are you? Hey, Carla. Glad glad to be here. And um, so I have a poem that is a... It's a golden shovel oh, written for Dorian uh, Lux, and um, and it's based on her poem "Heart." And the line from her poem is, "Hard-headed heart, heart of gold, coal." And it has advice for her as well. So it's called, okay, Dorian, about smoking. Don't be so hard headed. Nurture your charred lungs, your challenged heart. You gather words, weave them with such heart and mind. Beat them with rhythm of rain, of impact driver, drumbeat, slivers of gold, slivers of gold, cymbals, kiss for luck. A lump of coal. Ah, that's great. And of course, the golden shovel is that form. You can see uh, headed heart, heart of gold coal. Uh, those lines from uh, Dorian Lux, forming the last line, the last words of each line, and that's the golden shovel form. Very cool. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. I love that. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks you too. All right, that was Carla Schwartz. Let's go next to Nivedita Karthik before she has to run off to work. Hello. Hey, Nivy. How are you tonight? Hey, Tim. I'm doing good. Thank you. How about you? I'm great. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun night. This is one I just love weird stuff. So it was really fun having a book full of weird, you know, supernatural and <laughs> fun stories. Yeah. It's good for me. Um, so what do you have for us, though? Um, I have a prompt point, as usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of split in two. It's just one point, but um, the tone of voice sort of changes as we go through and I think once I start reading, it's going to be mightily clear who the letter is addressed to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, shall I start? Ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I have it up for everybody at home. It's called A Plea for Clarity. A Plea for Clarity. I write this to you now as the Mimsy Gliax Populi over the Welking Woodsters the triambling twiggies and fluttering florets. The brillix balls now snazzled, and calypso kitted its clacket. My scribble scrabbles almost out of sludge, and my nookie nookins gone knockin'. Lock em a before I forget. Here's a questable for you to sling swerve back at me. What exactly is a borogov? How do you like my Jabberwock version? Did your nookie knockin' go walkin'? If so, please continue in words, glorious words that I can decipher. Must you always startle my senses when I'm trying to take a break? I drop from this reality to yours. I sit in the wave trapped by your web. An elementary treatise on determinants this is not. I wish you would unjabberwock your jabberwocky 
for me. That's great. I had to stifle a little laughter there. A really funny poem, uh, A Plea for Clarity. Uh, thanks, Nivy. That was really fun. I loved all your uh, made-up words, too. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And in this, the, an elementary data is on determinants. So that's actually, there's a fun story behind that. Uh-huh. Um, so as we all know, Lewis Carroll was a professor of math at Oxford University. And while I was studying there, I learned this little anecdote. So Queen Victoria, who was the ruler at that time, also enamored on hearing the story of Alice in Wonderland that she's like, no, the next book you write, I have to have the first copy of it. And that happened to be an elementary treatise on determinants. And she was so furious that she didn't know what to do to pull those casual. Oh, that's really funny. I never heard that story. That's great. Thanks for sharing that, Nivi. And the poem, too. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely being here. Yeah. Have a good evening. Yeah, have a great day. It was uh, Nivi DeCarthic with uh, A Plea for Clarity. Uh, which is uh, every editor's plea as well. A little double, <laughs> double interest there. Let's go to Audrey Friedman next. Hi, Tim. Hey, Audrey. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, so I seem to have been on a high bun jag. Uh-huh. I th- I think there's a manuscript coming. I just oh, can't that's see. great to hear. We have, um, I should say, we have a great lineup of guests coming up in the next. Uh, we have like Bob Hickok. We have um, Jane Hirschfield. We have mm-hmm. um, um, who else? Uh, Brian Turner. But we also have Penny Harder, whose last oh. two books you you probably know. You know, she's full of hyben. Um, and so she sent three books. Two are like almost entirely hyben, and then there's another of uh, more free verse. But so that's coming up like September 18th. I think is the date. So uh, you'll like that episode, um, definitely. And I feel on a Hyben kick. I love, I mean, I've always loved haiku, and then Hyben makes it so much more substantial. Uh, so yeah. it's a good form. I've been doing this for several years, but mm. it's intensifying. <laughs> well, that's great. Okay, so this one's not a prompt poem, although I suspect a prompt poem will be coming. Passing time. I was an only child, but was fortunate to live in a 72-family high-rise. No lack of kids to play with. But after dinner, I was on my own. Daddy was on his recliner watching Walter Cronkite after a day of physical labor at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Mom was busy cleaning the ever-elusive dust particles, aiming the vacuum nozzle at the ceilings, then at the electric sockets. He was tired, she was wired. So I knelt by the large wooden toy box in my room and reached for the most treasured possessions. I pieced together puzzles, twist knobs to create Pavlovian mazes on my Etch-a-Sketch, make Wooly Wooly's iron filing hair stand straight up with a magnetic wand. I would spin fantasies of Bobby and Ken's adventures and dress them impeccably or teach them important things like nouns and verbs or long division. On a high wire of baker's twine, my gyroscope pirouettes. Uh, that is great, Audrey. And I have to admit, I did the... Um... You know, what I can't help but doing by reading the haiku first as you were starting, I knew a great haiku was coming the whole time. Which, uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, I really like that. That's great. The, my gyroscope pair. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. Thank you. 
Good night, everybody. Yep. Good night. Yeah, it was Audrey Friedman with Passing Time. And uh, next in line, and uh, yeah, next in line, we'll go to uh, Dick Westheimer. Hello, Dick. How are you doing tonight? Yeah, good. I just loved your prompt poems tonight. Oh, both, both the one you maybe thought through a little bit and the one that just <laughs> came out. Like that uh, musket, you know, the refinement of the rifle to the musket really really was a ni- nice turn right there at the beginning of the poem. Well, thanks. Yeah, that was written in its own advice. Because that was, I mean, it was a long time ago. But, uh, you know, and that's why I like to write. I like to have no idea what's coming going to happen. And lately I've been like, oh, God, I have like 15 minutes to write a poem. So I better think of it before in the shower or something or in the car. And then it comes out. And that's just not, I don't know, that's not where it's at for me. So I got to I gotta take my own advice and start just cranking them out, even if they're garbage and not trying to make them good. And the whole, I got to start from scratch, I think, is my <laughs> what I got to do. That That's me every week as I stare <laughs> at the news headlines. <laughs> yeah. and think about what I'm going to do for tonight or, you know, for uh, Friday night. Um, and and I have I do have a prompt poem, but you're not going to see it because I overthought it. Um, and but but listening tonight, I got some ideas. Oh, that's cool. ideas uh-huh. or, or, or yeah, yeah, not ideas, but like leaping off points. <laughs> leaping, thank you. Yeah, I got I I've, I've got some points of departure. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good uh, from the literalism, and you know, that that happens to me so much as I'll have a very literal happen in this poem, and then and then it followed your shock your musket, your musket <laughs> advice. So I'm going to read fission as a bomb, as a fist, as a kiss, and I'll give a little background. Um, so um, I believe it was the seventh. Um, that the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki uh, after the bomb was dropped on on Hiroshima. And there's so much, you know, like poetry and other about the, um, you know, that that sort of centers around, you know, the the incredible suffering and the ironies and all that of the, um, uh, of it. But I saw a picture of the core of the Nagasaki bomb, the fat man bomb, Mm -hmm. and it's this big. Oh wow! The the fissile material is as big as your fist, or a little bit bigger. Uh, that's what caused all that explosion, and um, or the fuel for fuel for that explosion. Um, and it's beautiful. It's like a pearl. Mm-hmm. It's like shined and compressed, and it looked it, it's almost pearlescent in the pictures I saw of it. And and that was the image that stuck with me. So here is the, here is the poem that came from that. Vision is a bomb, is a fist, is a kiss. The fat man bomb dropped on Nagasaki should not be a metaphor for anything. And the fact that the bomb's mark was at the heart of the city, and the fact that it missed its target, is ironic because missed its target is what Chet means in Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible not sin like those with the mind of a child think because who but a child would smash an entire city just because he can but i digress and it's complicated why a bomb has a hot pressed plutonium heart as big as a fist and that that fist was as beautiful as a perfect kiss as my lover's breast which my hand is obsessed with 
that a mushroom cloud is what it looks like when that hand closes so tight on itself that it makes a Geiger counter tick, and a man might mistake it for righteousness. And haven't we all been there? at war with someone who is definitely not us and most definitely is and how fortunate i in particular am that i didn't have an a-bomb in that hand when my lover and i were younger when my lust was radioactive and under the pressure of a shape shape-charged blast that i forged out of a man-child's expectation of what a city of love was to look like yeah, great poem. Great breathless reading of it too, Dick. That was a uh, good work. Uh and I think it's one sentence. Yeah, there yeah, it is. It is, yeah. It's yeah, no, non stop rolling on. Mm-hmm. Just pour it out. But uh thank you. And uh yeah, I'll stop thinking so much. Yeah. <laughs> well I really enjoyed that. Whatever you're doing's working. <laughs> so, okay, thanks. Thanks for bye-bye. saying that. Yep, bye. So Dick Westheimer with uh Fission is a bomb, is a fist is a kiss. Uh, next, let's go to Susan Bangs Monroe. Hi, Tim. Hey, Hi, Susan. Yeah, I'm great. Good to see you. Good to see you guys. Um, I wrote a poem following the prompt mm-hmm. um, to Billy Collins. Ah, perfect. Mm-hmm. To write a poem. And I think this is inspired by his poem called Not Touching. <clears throat> it's called With a Forever Stamp. To Billy. Billy, oh, Billy, write me a match, a man or a metaphor who fits me, like the fountain pen that stained my young woman's hand as I doodled marginal wisdom in Shakespeare, or the red pencil that queried inconsistencies and pumped up passive voice. I was just an editor then, not a poet. Make his image dance across my screen and enter my life. Why do so many men unmatch say they dance the tango? While you drink your coffee and gaze out the window, write me a match like the super cardinals in my yard. Her beak the color of kumquat, him hibiscus red, flouting his sexiness. My exes, too. It's a shame, but can't be helped. Smile from their wooden frames, younger then, and knock about in my head with advice. Write them out for a better manifestation. Something like you, touching, not floating out the window. Grab him, bring him to me when you come. Oh, that's great. That was excellent, too. I love the, uh, you know, both the... uh... The lines about the the aside about the exes and then the uh, the tango line. There's so much to like about that poem. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, with a forever stamp to Billy uh, by Susan Monroe. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Susan. Thank you. Okay, Brian Sullivan is next in line. Hello. Hi, Tim. Hey, Brian. Um, okay, I'm really enjoying tonight the weirdness of the interview and all these prompt poems have been great. Yeah, I'm looking forward um, to seeing who uh, you know people write to. That's going to be a highlight for me. So uh, I'm interested. <laughs> I'm taking notes. <laughs> and I try to, but I don't have a prompt poem for this week yet. I have a, a prompt poem from last week because okay. I didn't get here in time to read. Ah, and last week's my prompt, prompt poem that was a letter. Yeah, say, yeah, say the prompt for people forgot. Yep. Okay. A few months before the end, I should say. Um, 
a Whipple, which I mention a lot in this for anyone who doesn't know, is a like major surgical procedure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a few months before the end, my dad was in the OR for his Whipple, and we were back. Oh, this is a tritina also. I should have mentioned that in oh. case people think it's repetitive if you can't see it. My dad was in the OR for his Whipple, and we were back waiting at home with my cousin Judy, the family nurse, waiting for the call. My mom did not like waiting. She started tidying the living room. Whipple or no Whipple, she liked the tidy home. Judy shifted in her chair. Make yourself at home, my mother said. Let's have tea while we're waiting for it. She trailed off, avoiding the Whipple. I put the water on, relieved to be distracted from the Whipple, and then noticed plastic flakes like flecks of airy foam dipping and cresting as my mother and Judy sat waiting. I lit the wrong burner and the Reynolds wrap waiting next to the kettle was now cooking. As if the Whipple weren't enough to worry about, our home just might go up in smoke. I had to save our home quietly while my mom and Judy sat their backs to me, waiting, chatting, unaware. I watched the plastic on the stove ripple and almost liquefy. Dousing it was simple, not like the Whipple, but the bits of plastic still might drift throughout our home and freak my mother out. While mom and Judy sat waiting for tea, I was silently swiping at shreds that hovered, waiting, and then evading my grasp. I missed, like I hoped the Whipple wouldn't miss, the tumor. It still felt as if I had to save our home, and I was hopping around, catching a few flakes now, when our home phone, a green brick on the wall, suddenly rang to end our waiting. I answered and heard that when they'd gone in for the Whipple, they'd found no tumor, and they'd closed up. No Whipple. I shared the news, and there were whoops in our home, though Judy, our knowing nurse, raised an eyebrow at the bits of plastic that she now saw hovering, waiting. Oh, that was great. Great use of the Tritina form. For people who don't know, that's like a Sestina, but three uh, lines per stanza. So it's those three words, Whipple, home, and waiting, repeating. Um, and the prompt was to uh, write a poem with something cooks. So uh, great use of the form, great use of the prompt. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, that was Brian O'Sullivan with a few months before the end. And uh, next in line, we've got uh, Carolyn Codd. Hello. Hello, Carolyn. Good to see you. Yeah, nice to see you, too. Uh, it's again, it's super quiet again, Carolyn. Could you uh, get, go close? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah, I have um, a thing that's a, it's a set of three little poems. Um, and it came from... A couple of weeks ago, there was a prompt of, about cooking. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that didn't really say anything to me because I don't really cook very much anymore. But um, then all of a sudden, I got I got this little mini poem. And um, I put it together with two other poems, older poems of mine. And I called the whole thing Up and Down and Hot and Cool. Interesting. Okay, let's so hear it. This is the to begin with the mini poem. At times, after cooking up something, one needs to find a good way to cool down. And this is the hot one. It's firelight, a dream memory. We were flushed with excitement, so much so that the heat of our passion quickly merged with the brilliant dancing flames of the fireplace until the whole room seemed ablaze. It was exciting. It was hot. And yet nothing actually burned except, of course, the logs being consumed one by one by the fire. Later on, for a long, long time, almost until forever, we rested peacefully in the soft light of the calmly glowing embers. Mm. And this is the, the cooling one. 
summer afternoon. Warm and lazy the air, sleepy my cat and I. Quiet the leaves of the trees, siesta my cat with me. Shade, silent and cool, peaceful me, and furring the cat. Hmm. Yeah, great, great set of uh, three poems there, Carolyn. I, I liked them all. I, I, yeah, I just wanted to mention the firelight one. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually had the opportunity to read it at my church recently. Oh, yeah, that's great. I thought it was kind of, um, I didn't really expect that. But mm -hmm. we had, it wasn't in a service, but we had a, a summer study group. Mm -hmm. And um, some of us decided it was time to grapple with the subject of sexuality in the, at the church. Oh, that's so really cool. became part of the discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's really neat. Thanks for sharing that and the story, too, Carolyn. Okay, thank you. Yep, bye. Bye. It was uh, Carolyn Codd with uh, the uh, Up and Down Hot and Cool set of poems. Thanks, Carolyn. Um, next, let's see. Laura Berg is next in line. Hello. Hi, Laura. Um, so I, I did try the prompt poem, but I'm not reading it tonight. I, I tried, and I'll keep working on it. Okay. I was trying with Sylvia Plath to ask not to kill herself. Oh, that yeah, that'd be a good that'd be a good one. We'd love Just to have her on the route. Practical advice. Mm -hmm. Okay, because there are statistics that poets die six years younger on average than than prose writers. Mm -hmm. So, but I think that we're changing all of that. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, it's you know, I, I think uh, you know, certain people are drawn to it because it's so healing. And then, but, it's, but yeah. it's people that need healing, and so that's a part of it. Um, we talked to James Pennebaker, who did some of that research in um, you know the the suicidal. They took uh, linguistic analysis of poems to see if they could predict which oh, poets wow. would do would commit suicide based on the the content of their poems, and, and found you know some interesting results there. Like they could predict it, which is really interesting if you go back in issue number seventy four. It was an uh, interview with him talking about that, but yeah. It's definitely mm -hmm. definitely an issue that comes up with poets, and it'd be nice if if it didn't, because I'd love to have Sylvia Plath around longer yeah. for sure. <laughs> okay, so I just put up this one instead. Uh -huh. Okay. Sure. Okay. Um, ideation. When an idea appears before me as if I'd made a hairpin turn, and come upon terraces of rice paddies on hills like bowls flipped upside down studded with tourmaline all the way to the horizon, rice farmers toiling tiny in the distance. I want to rest under a mango tree, eat rice cakes, drink tea with evaporated milk and too much sugar, talk small talk, whims of weather, upcoming monsoons, or great big empty talk, yakety-yak of the end of empires and what comes after. Circling round and round the pearly idea at the center of my nowhere, not wanting to spend it too soon. Oh, that's a beautiful poem. I love that, too. I love the yakety yak of the end of em empires. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Wonderful poem. Thanks for sharing that, Laura. Thanks. Yeah, great poems tonight all around. I really liked every one. Let's see. Next up is Mark Grinier. Hey, Mark, are you there? Oh, I think you're on mute. Hi. Oh, oh, no, wait. <laughs> I accidentally muted you instead of asking you to unmute. Can you unmute again? There you go. There you go. Thanks. Yeah, that was my fault. As you were as you were unmuting, I hit the ask to unmute, but it turned to mute. 
it did change. Anyway. Well, being at cross purpose sounds 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 not unusual. Um, I, I I picked Billy Collins too, so mm -hmm. that, that I think there's be. a lot of uh, overlap in the Billy Collins groups uh, and his uh, streaming too, which is I love. If by the way, if nobody uh, is aware, Billy Collins has great uh, like a couple couple times, uh, maybe three four times a month, he comes on live stream on Facebook. And does a really mm -hmm. nice broadcast. And uh, I think a lot of Billy Collins fans uh, overlapping our two audiences. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've watched that a few times. Mine's called, uh, it's after a specific poem in his selected poems, Smile, Sailing Alone Around the Room. Mm -hmm. And the poem, uh, the titles of the poem is in here. And it's titled, a brown, The Brown Hair, A Grump. Dear Billy, parentheses, Mr. Collins, I admire the wit that rambles through so many of your poems, the snarky attitude that fills them with lemon juice and sly good humor, as in your poem Fishing on the Susquehanna in July, describing the pleasure, if it is a pleasure, of floating on a green flat-bottomed boat on a wood-bordered southeastern river, river holding the thin whip of a pole you saw in that clever little egg of time you spent standing in front of a painting in a museum in Philadelphia, imagining that scene, imagining it without the experience, the humid heat, the sweat of pulling the oars as you tried to row against the current under a cloud-ruffled sky in July. Remembering this, you tried to manufacture the sens that sensation in your poem, along with the image of you standing there, saying to yourself and to, and to the person next to you, that is something I'm unlikely ever to do, as if only a fool in a red bandana could conceive of doing something as American as that, so distant from the quiet room like this one in which you sat, distant from it all, bored and supercilious about events like this, but startled at the end by the alertness of a brown hair, so wired you could imagine it springing from the frame to recede by you in your grump as it landed at your feet on the floor, then scurried away with love and admiration. Mark. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. And got the voice beautifully too uh, done. I, I love that poem too. Uh, the brown hair, a good grump. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Mark. Yeah. So I'm Mark Grinier. Uh, next up is uh, Rob Harris. Hey, Rob. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Good to see you. Okay, great. Well, uh, thanks for giving me the chance to do this. Um, I did a Poetry Spawn this week. Um, I'm trying to get the lady just in here. Um, it was about Maui because uh, I had visited it once many years ago. Gosh, it's like, okay, that's the best I can get. Um, no, it's not much better. Sorry. Okay, let's try that. That's all right. And I have okay. the I have the photo up of you in Maui um, that you sent yes. to you with the poem. Uh, yeah. So you're able to use the JPEG version. Yeah, I, I put it up. I'm going to put the. Uh, it's easier to read the other version, so I'll show that while you're reading. But but you can see this for people just listening too. Uh, this is. Uh, uh, They're slightly different. It's it's basically the same poem, but uh, I have to set the stage so I, that picture uh was a young man i no longer am i think i was 28 or 29 mm -hmm. um so so much of my life was still ahead of me back then but uh i was in maui for a wedding of a friend and uh i knew i probably wasn't ever going to get back there again so i was just enjoying it 
as, as much as I could. Um, and when I laid this out, there was something about the, the poem that I wanted to make fit into the uh, frame. So I messed around with the, the software editing program and uh, this was the best I could do. Anytime I tried to change the font color, it would disappear. So I believe it with the white font, which uh -huh. really wasn't fine. But uh, sometimes you just got to take what you can get. But uh, Front Street, just to uh, um, give you the title, Front Street is kind of the main uh, drag in Lahaina, which is the main city on the island of Maui. So it's Front Street, Lahaina, Maui, Hawaii, I guess. So. Um, I just kind of like the way Front Street Farewell sounded, so I, I mm -hmm. went with it like that, and it goes like this. Um, I, visit, I visited you just once at the end of the 20th century. It sometimes feels like it was only last week. Sunshine and hibiscus flowers overflowed in a way that didn't seem possible. In the days I was with you, I learned that Maui no ka'oi, Maui is the best. I had hoped your isolation would somehow protect you from our rapidly warming climate. But your charred remains are a painful reminder that nothing in this world can ever be permanent. May all of us, whether fortunate enough to have visited you or not, finally appreciate the harm we are inflicting upon this planet. And as I was laying this out, I, I was drawn to the way I was trying to figure out where the text should go. And I love the way that the Maui no Ka'oi fits right over mm -hmm. the, uh, called the Shaka sign. It's like what the surfers and the people in Maui kind of do to kind of Anglers kind of remind themselves of just, uh, you know, take it easy, relax. Um, so I, rather than try to work around it or leave it exposed, I just figured out the Maui no Kaoi part was really the, the heart of the poem, and it just happened to overlap with, with that Shaka sign. So I thought, okay, I'll go with that. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, mm -hmm. It's I, I wish everyone watching this had been Maui, although in, in reality, unless you get married there or you honeymoon there, it's it's a long way to go it's, mm -hmm. it's expensive it's certainly not like going to disney world or the smoky mountains or something it's it's hard to get there but uh my heart is 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 with them because it just it's heartbreaking to see all the all the destruction that those fires caused and uh I just felt like I had to comment on it in some way. So, yeah, well, it definitely is. It's and it's another. You know, we talk about ecological disasters. Another ecological disaster: letting all those uh, non-native grasses grow all over the place, and then, uh, you know, it's and the, the same the, thing that's well, happened here. It's a cheat grass. You know, it's we're not not supposed to be grass that lights on fire that easily, <laughs> and and uh, you know, and so it's going to be very hard to rebuild. I mm -hmm. mean, it just. The, the remoteness of the island, the, the distance, everything's got to be flown in from the mainland thousands of miles away. It's just anyone who thinks that it's going to be rebuilt soon is, is fooling themselves. Yeah. And um, that's kind of what made this so so important for me to write. It, it, it will get rebuilt one day, but it won't be in my lifetime, and it probably won't be in any of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. That's just heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, it's a heartbreaking tragedy for sure. Thanks for, for sharing that poem. And bringing up that memory. Oh, sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was Rob Harris with uh, a Front Street Farewell. And um, let's go to Angela Gartner next. Hey, Tim. How are you? Hey, Angela. I'm great. It's good to see you. It's been a bit. Yeah. Well, you're not seeing me today, but... <laughs> well, I can imagine. I'm using my imagination, yeah. which is uh, okay. strong after after having this imaginative book that we focused on this week. Yeah. So, uh, so what do you got for us? Um, I sent in my Poets for Spawn poem from mm -hmm. last week. 
Um, it's been kind of a crazy summer, kind of winding down and trying to uh, move and do all these different things. But also, um, my husband's a teacher. I am a teacher as far as in teaching college again this semester. Mm -hmm. And my kids are going back to school. And even though we don't want to start thinking about school, it feels early. It really isn't. Um, in our area, schools are going back this week and early next week. Um, I'm, you know, um, we're all preparing to go back to school. So it's just something on your mind when August hits. You know, we just start thinking about school, unfortunately, and not actually thinking about what we should be doing. It's just having fun, enjoying our last days of summer. Yeah, so. yeah my kids have been back since Thursday. And uh, oh. so, so they, uh, yeah, it's starting to start up early. Tomorrow is already the uh, open house. So you're going to go meet the teacher. So that's going to be coming up soon. <laughs> and definitely all the school supplies, the new book bags and all that stuff. Yep. It's that time of year. It is that time of year. So I was just thinking of all the supplies we buy that are on the list that are really, that they come home to, like, as I say in the poem, like at the end of the school year, you get, you get like the supplies back, some supplies like pencils and mm -hmm. some other things. It's just, uh, it's just one of those things where I'm just, I'm not ready for the school year yet. I want to stay in summer, but it's just not <laughs> happening. And it, it's, um, and it's true, like I'm, you know, I feel like people, like people who don't have kids don't think about this stuff, you mm -hmm. know, or, you know, their kids are out of school and it's kind of, you know, they're still doing fun summer stuff when we're getting ready for school. So. Yeah. Yep. Totally true. And it just goes by so fast too. <laughs> it really yeah. Does. It goes by super fast and my kids are close, nearing the end, but um, I think it gets even more complicated, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> as ready as you can be. <laughs> okay, let's hear it, Angela. The first day of school sign should read, I promise they will use all the glue sticks. I have to fill out a form for the newish Dusty Chromebook. My kid yells at it during the school year because it lags too much and nothing is good on it. We have to get a physical in before it expires so we can go up and down the court or whatever sport I have to raise money for, asking friends to buy game squares. I meet with the teachers and we sit down at my son's desk to fill, to fill with glue sticks that come home unused by the end of the year. I still have Summer Barbie's pink party favors and Taylor Swift tickets under the red, green, blue, yellow folders. I drove by our city's pool and felt jealous of people drying in their big towels. I was on my way to the store to pick a few a few more antibacterial wipes and tissues. Uh, yeah, great. I definitely agree and feel that sentiment. You know, I um, I don't know. The uh, school more and more feels like sort of interfering with uh, getting to spend time with the kids, which I guess is how it, what happens when they get older. But man, they're so busy, and they're you know all the homework they got to do after school. It's like you only have the weekend, and I'm just not used to that. So. Definitely can relate, Angela, to that poem. Thanks for sharing it. Well, thank you, and yeah, good luck to the new school year for all parents. So. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Same here. <laughs> thanks, and thanks to yours. Or, or good luck with your kids, too. Thanks. Yep. Have a good day. Yep, thanks. you too. That was Angela Russo Gardner with uh, the first day of school sign should read, I promise they will use all the glue sticks. That's a funny title. I like that, too. Um, all right, and next we have uh, Lucy Chow. Hello, Tim. Hey, Lucy. How are you tonight? 
I'm doing very well, and I've been thinking about this problem for all week. Uh-huh. And but um, because it's such a tremendous challenge to have to offer some suggestion to my favorite poet, and then yeah, that and also is the um, trick of it. <laughs> yeah, because that that's a good one because it's a pretty tricky one. Um, I wrote a poem. And in the form of a letter to Brenda Hillman, and mm-hmm. she's my favorite poet. Um, and she's very strange, very. Um, she's a poet I do not understand mm-hmm. very much, but I think that's um, one of the very reasons why I love her so much. So she mentioned in the interview that um, after she had this uh, tetralogy. On the four elements: water, earth, and fire, and um, and air. She's also writing a tetralogy to time. Um, the, these uh, units, different units of time. Mm-hmm. Um, after she had seasons, days, and minutes, uh, she also mentioned that she's going to write a, a book about centuries if she ever has the time. So, um. I've been thinking about these concepts for um, for a while, but this morning it occurred to me that there is a plant that is native to um, many um, desert regions in the U.S. and Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and 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 Brenda Hillman resides in California. Um, I'm I'm thinking about this um, plant called the century plant, and. It's um, it refers to the blue agave, or hmm. some plants in also in that genus. Um, but it's it's very interesting why it's called that because it it's it blooms very rarely, mm-hmm. and the interval can be pretty much close to a century. And after it blooms, it it dies and it it is reborn from um, the the dead stalk of the plant that flowered oh wow that's fascinating yeah so i'm sort of got inspired by that concept and i i wrote the letter in the voice of the blue agave or the century plant to brenda hillman so i'll read it when you have it up yep i have it up go ahead whenever you're ready blue agave writes a letter to brenda The name century plant arises from the long intervals between bloomings, from 5 to 100 years. After blooming, the century plant dies back and is replaced by new shoots. What's your punctuation for blooming? The fire roots and water spirits of my body sprout rare rutilant energy. You might see as lily-shaped sparks. It takes centuries to ripen creamy stars. I am eager to burst like long vowels longing for plosives. Extremophiles, camo-lethal autotrophs, hide their extra life among the days. Golden grasses gone to seeds and cones of pyrophilic pines love the seasons. Brenda, I love you, born in the 50s, counting minutes on your telomeres. Love each other till the end of time, one of your little Brenda says to Bob. As a butterfly's feelers, time can end more than one time. Your poem's ideas are simple and sweet. The rare radiance of love will outlast rhizomatic time. 
A botanist erased my punctuation for love, so that my meaning would not go to seed. How long is a century? Between two beginnings, Brenda of my root, write a century book, love. You might include Aristocomythias. Oh, that's a beautiful poem. I love uh, all the details, too, and your use of uh, spacing and punctuation, uh, which is um, Brenda Hillman-esque. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Yeah, I'm going to have to learn more about this blue agave. And maybe we have it uh, near me, because I'm in the desert southwest, like right in the fringes of the Mojave. So maybe it's maybe it's somewhere around here, too. I can find it. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Yep, take care. Good night. Good day. There's Lucy Chow with Blue Agave Writes a Letter to Brenda. All right, and that is going to wrap up the uh, Zoom meeting. Let's see what else we have. We have a little bit of time left. Um, and I think I saw a couple poems that maybe we should share. So Clayton Clark has one. Um, couldn't make it, but uh, she loved for us to read it. And sure, why not, since we have a little bit of time. No guarantees if you have, uh, if you can't stay for the, uh, if you can't make it the Zoom live. There's no guarantee I'll read your poem, but if you send it in, I, I might be able to. And today we have a little bit of extra time. So here is Clayton Clark's poem. Um, Clayton says, uh, sorry I couldn't stick around for the open mic, but great interview. If you have time, I'd love you to read this. It's uh, Ari, the heart chat in the chat discussion <laughs> on last Friday's Critique of the Week. So that's what it's uh, in response to. And if you weren't watching the Critique of the Week, there is this annoying um, on YouTube, this heart button that sort of gets in the way now. And uh, we were talking about that. And so uh, this is Clayton Clark's poem in response to the heart button. And uh, it's right here. Um, it was... Um, what I Cannot Control on YouTube for Nate Jacobs. I hate the heart. It came out of nowhere and I can't get rid of it. Friday, I found I wasn't alone. It seemed unanimous except for Nate, who said he doesn't have one. Check your privilege, Nate, I want to suggest, but can't because I can't see him now. He also comes out of nowhere, more or less, but he can and does go away. Life is strange. I meander along in the daily field when Zap, a tractor, appears, as if bloodborne, and becomes all there is and ever was, revealed in the ab abundant, now threatened ears of corn. For the love of the internet, please, Lord, take the fake heart back. Let peace be restored. <laughs> That's great. And I agree. I mean, it's, it is uh, annoying. I can't pin the... Um, I say I'm going to pin the uh, Zoom link on YouTube, but I can't. I actually can't pin it because uh, the heart is in the way of the little button that makes you pin it. So YouTube, fix that, please. Anyway, thanks for sharing that. That was fun, Clayton, uh, Clayton Clark. Um, okay, so let's go. I don't think Katie is going to make it. She um, is delayed on the plane. So I'll read Katie's poem. She wasn't here last week only because she was sick, and now this week um, on the plane, but otherwise she's always going to be here like she usually is. And this is... Uh, her poem for her prompt, Letter to Billy Collins While Under the Influence of Nitrous Oxide. Despite your advice, I must confess to rarely writing in the morning. Many Americans must take the wheel before I hit Poem Avenue. And I am embarrassed to report how I have to swerve around all of this modern roadkill. To-dos jump out like squirrels. Their gray tails remind me that I need to buy more floss. Please tell me how you shoot string up to lasso a falcon's beak, circle the sunrise on a mountain's peak, and then spiral down to the orange tuft of a cat's ear. That old tabby pounces on profundity and then recoils into the dry grass again. You write the perfect silent kill, 
I brush through your words at least twice a day, grateful for your images, stuck forever between my teeth. Ferlinghetti's lighthouse still fills in for my molar's crown and has since college. The trouble with this trail, where I knit my footsteps into the cold gravel like braille, is that I mostly stumble. But sometimes when the air is hot and the wind just right, my poems spring up wildfires. My blonde straw flames with verses I don't even remember lighting. You made me pulse from a rattlesnake strike. Now I know that words are so much more than what we write. And in return, I hold up this free verse offering, a travel-sized tube of peppermint toothpaste and a plastic bag presented alongside my bill for a root canal, and ask you, please, to remember to floss. That's Katie Dozier's poem, um, the uh, letter to Billy Collins while under the influence of nitrous oxide. Uh, fun as always. And then a third poem of Billy Collins. I can also say that Katie and I do the poetry space every uh, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's on Twitter, but it's a podcast, too, where we just kind of casually sit around with people like Dick Westheimer. Um, Keller Schwartz has been in there before. Um, I mean, George Pastana, Odd Writings is there very often as well, um, pretty regularly. And um, so we have a lot of people it's interesting to talk to. And we talk about a, so- a topic related to poetry. It's sort of a roundtable discussion, a lot of fun on Twitter, but you have to use the app anyway. This week's topic is money. So we're going to talk about money and poetry, all the mechanisms and things that go on behind the scenes and how money actually operates. Uh, it's a topic that we don't like to talk about as poets. I don't really like talking about money either. But uh, it's some, some important things going on there. So that's going to be the topic this week on Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And um, that is going to be it for the open lines and the poems for this week. Next week's prompt, we'll go right to it. Next week's prompt, chosen by Katie, is going to be this. Write a villanelle that includes a cryptid, mythological figure such as the Loch Ness Monster, etc. Um, you can make up your own cryptid. That's, that's the word. So cryptozoology is like the study of possible, I think it's like animals or creatures that, that don't actually exist or might exist, but there's no proof they exist. And then those actual creatures are called cryptids. So like the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, um, the big cats of uh, England, the uh, Bigfoot, um, aliens, of course, all the varieties of aliens, um, anything you can imagine and come up with. Uh, write a poem uh, that includes a cryptid, but make it a villanelle. So that is your prompt for next week. And of course, you can share your prompt on the Rattlecast, or uh, you can send it to the prompt poems category on Submittable and uh, have it be chosen. I mean, you can do both. Um, you can have it be chosen or considered for the prompt poem of the month. It doesn't matter whether you're at, you read it or not. We The poems are judged completely um, separate from that. We just read the poems, um, whether you read or not. So feel free to share them um, or share them and submit them for the prompt poem of the month. And that is a lot of fun. So go ahead and do that. And now it's time for my Saiku. And this was interesting because I was looking. Uh, we were out walking the dog late last night, looking at the stars, talking about how they twinkle. And then I saw this article uh, randomly. Um, it's from the University from Northwestern. Um, and here it is. Make it, so I'm trying to make it so you can actually see it. Hang on. These, they might just make these. It's the way everything's for a phone. Anyway, what does a twinkling star sound like? Take a listen. And so uh, basically, if you go through it, well, we can, I think I can play it. 
let's just play it. But so what they did, I'll tell you before I play it, I'll tell you what they did. So so we all know pretty much that the stars twinkle because of the atmosphere. So there's different densities of the air that are moving around in the atmosphere that, that you know, block and absorb and deflect light at various degrees as it moves. And so that's what gives the twinkling effect, right? But it turns out that stars have their own twinkle. It's a very subtle twinkle, but it's because of the convection of heat inside the star itself. And so you can look at it, um, you know, it's, it's too subtle to sort of detect with our instruments, but we can model it and know that it's there based on the convection currents. So what this team did at Northwestern was model that and then turn it into sound. And I think they just know that we like hearing things from space because it really doesn't make sense to turn it into sound, to be honest. But still, we do like things from space. <laughs> and so this is the sound that they created of a star twinkling. And I'll, I'll play this video just briefly. That's it. Yeah, so that's the sound of a star twinkling. <laughs> and um, so very interesting there. Um, now, let's see. So here's the, pro or the, the haiku for this week based on that is right here. And uh, here we go. The wink in a twinkling star, childhood. That is your haiku for the week. The wink in a twinkling star, childhood. Um, you're thinking about uh, if you're if you follow my Facebook page, uh, I post a picture of my daughter uh, over over time at uh, the San Diego Zoo, so you can see that. But that's what I was thinking of here too. Just how fast those 13 years go by from a little tiny baby into uh, someone I can barely pick up. That is uh, how childhood operates. Uh, but that is this week's like who. Hope you enjoy that. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Um, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be Jane Clark, and it's a special time. So I'm sorry, it's the end of summer. We're moving stuff around a lot of different times. Um, this is going to be an earlier show, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. That's because Jane Clark is uh, one of the great poets writing today in Ireland. So she was in our Irish Poets issue. Um, she had to push back this episode. She was going to be back in June and then ended up pushing it back to August. But to accommodate her time zone, because it's going to be 3 a.m. or something in Ireland, we're moving the show f forward in the day um, eight hours. So it's noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And that's going to be Jane Clark. Her new book just won a whole bunch of prizes, A Change in the Air. I loved her poem in that issue. Uh, you might remember it. If not, go look it out. But it's a, a great work by Jane Clark. And that's Rattlecast number 207. Once again, the prompt for next week is to write a villanelle that includes a cryptid. And that's going to be a lot of fun. So hope everybody does it. And hope you have a great week. In the meantime, uh, we'll be here for Critique of the Week one day late as well on Saturday this week. But uh, we'll be here for that. And then we'll be here for Jane Clark, Rattlecast number 207, August 21st. Hope to see you then. We'll talk to you later. Good night.